of Matthew, the seventh chapter. You follow, please, as I read the first 14 verses. Our Lord is speaking in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. and says, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, that's like a measuring cup, with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the the mote, or the speck, that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. For what man is there of whom... Uh, I'm sorry, of what, or what man is there of you whom, if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets in the bulletin. The title of this morning's message is The Two Ways. You'll notice that's the next verse. That's the verse we didn't read. As I began to prepare for this Sunday's message, it became obvious that there would not be enough time, unless y'all really wanted to go into extra innings this afternoon, uh, to cover that entire section. So we will leave that to next Sunday morning, Lord willing. This Sunday morning we will look at the subject, Judge Not. Judge Not. I almost call this the Christian's right and duty of judging. And as my text, taking Judge Not seems to be somewhat of a contradiction, does it not? But let us remember where we are. Here we have the king himself preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Earlier in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord has set and given us, as we say, characteristics of those people who will inhabit his kingdom. Go down to Mexico, as I've used Brother Samuel here as an example. Everybody has dark hair, dark skin. Most of them shorter than I am. I like down there because I'm tall. It's one place I'm tall. And if you say, well, what are the characteristics? I know what the characteristics of people are who live in Mexico. But what about in the kingdom of heaven? What do they look like? Do they all have the same color of hair, the same color of eyes, same color of skin? No, no. A wide variety, but they do have certain spiritual characteristics. They mourn. They're meek. They show mercy. Well, what do they eat down there? Well, in Mexico, they eat black beans and tortillas. What do they eat in the kingdom of heaven? In the kingdom of heaven, they hunger and they thirst after righteousness. That's their diet. That's how you recognize them and identify them. 
the people who will populate this kingdom, this kingdom that Christ comes to proclaim. But starting in chapter 5, after the Beatitudes saying, telling us who will be in that kingdom, we now see the king himself laying down the rule. I mean, a king rules, does he not? King sets forth the law. What are the laws that are to govern this kingdom? In chapter 5, we saw those laws as they relate man to man on the horizontal plane. That I am to do good. I am to be righteous. And not only righteous in deed, in action, but righteous in thought, and righteous in motive and heart. And then in chapter 6, we saw the fact that I am to have a relationship with God. That my worship of God is to be spiritual in its nature, not done just to be seen of men. My praying and my giving and my fasting, all these religious duties. Not to be done as others might do them, but done out of a heart directed towards God. And then last week, in the last part of chapter 6, we saw the Christian as he relates to things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things. What things? Things like food and shelter and clothing, things we call the necessities of life, things that you can't live without here in this world. Those things, Christ teaches us, seek first the kingdom of God, and God will take care of those things. And now we turn to chapter 7. It seems that what we have read this morning is more or less a hodgepodge, a disconnected series of things that really don't stand in much relationship to each other, except this. By now, it should become apparent to us all that life in the kingdom of heaven, life as Jesus is describing it, is to be radically different than life in the world. The people of Christ are not to live as other people live. They're not to act. They're not to think like other people. There is a radically different rule of life that is to be manifested in their lives as opposed to people in the world. I could take you back a few chapters and remind you how our Lord himself points out that if you only salute those who salute you, greet those that greet you, he says, how are you any different from anybody else? The heathen do that. The worst of men, like their friends, you know, as we say there's honor among these, the, the worst of men honor their... What's different about us? We're to love our enemies. We're to do good to those who don't do good to us back. We're to bless those that curse us. You, you see the radical difference, and that radical difference goes on here into chapter 7 with this first verse, Judge not, that ye be not judged. To judge someone is to condemn them, to pass sentence upon someone. Because of their actions, to consider them guilty, worthy of punishment. Now that's what it means to judge. But let me quickly add that we must not and really cannot understand this verse to be saying that you and I are to make no judgments whatsoever concerning the character of man. You say, well, wait wait a minute. He just said here, don't judge. Yes, in just a few more verses, he'll say in verse 6, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine. How are you going to know who dogs and swine are if you don't make a judgment? How in the world can you obey verse 6 unless there is some criteria that establishes who is who? 
Do you understand what I'm saying? That there is not in a sense that Jesus is ruling out the duty and the right of believers to make discriminating judgments. But I'll tell you what it does do. It means most clearly that you and I are never, never to stand in personal condemnation of any man. Let me say it again. You and I are not to stand in personal condemnation of any man. And now, you and I well know, and I've had it happen to me over and over again as a preacher of the gospel. People come to me and say, well, you know, you're judging me. And I'll have to admit, at this point, my knee-jerk response is, no, I'm not. God is. I'm just agreeing with Him. I am not laying my personal standard of right and wrong, of righteousness, upon any other man. You say, do you mean by that that there is no such thing as right and wrong? Oh, no. not saying that. Do you mean that men uh, shouldn't be condemned for certain actions? Oh, no. But it's not my standard that condemns them. I am simply setting before you this morning and before men in general the standard of God's Word and God's law. This is the standard. I don't make things right and wrong. You say, well, you you just decided that this is wrong. No, I didn't. There are things in my life that I've had to come to grips with, things that I thought were right that God's Word said were wrong. There's other things in my life that I thought might have been wrong and look at God's Word and I don't see anything wrong with them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our job is to bring our judgments in line with God's Word. He's the one judging. Now, don't get mad at me. Of course, people still get mad at the preacher, you understand, but that's like shooting the telegraph boy because you didn't like the telegram. My job is simply to set before you the standard of God's judgment. He's the judge. It's not my standard. I cannot stand in personal condemnation of anyone. But secondly, it also means that you and I are to recognize that we are not qualified to do the judging, the condemning. Remember the story in John 8, how they... uh, brought the woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus, saying, you know, Master Moses said you stone such as this. Um, what do you say? Trying to snare him, trying to trick him. What, what did he say? Remember, he was writing in the dirt. Wouldn't even look up to him. Wouldn't even give him time of day. He's busy. Conrad Merle once said, he said he's busy. Busy doing what? He's busy ignoring them. That's what he was doing. He's busy ignoring them. You know, they were no more interested in right, really right. They were just trying to lay a trap for him, and he knew it. And so he, without even looking up, riding in the dirt, says, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And you know the story how from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, they were convicted of their sins and they left. You see, the law, yes, said that you know, the elders of the city would take the perpetrator of the deed, and they were the witnesses who had seen it were to cast the first stone. But there is sort of an unwritten presumption here, is there not, that those who cast those stones must not themselves be guilty of the same charge. 
There is a sense, you see, how we as Christians, when we entered the kingdom of heaven at the door, we checked some things. Well, we checked our righteousness, we checked our rights, and we checked whatever authority we might have thought we had to judge another man. To enter the kingdom of heaven, we must admit, we must confess that we ourselves are worthy of hell. That if God does what's right with us, if the righteous judge of all the earth simply throws the book at us, if he does what's right, if he does what justice demands, we'll bust hell right open. That's what we confess at the door. If you don't confess that, you don't, you're not in. That's the amazing thing about the kingdom of God to get in it. You've got to admit that you have no right to it. <laughs> that you're disqualified. When you become disqualified, you become qualified to enter, if you will. There's that paradox of Christianity. And so at the door of the kingdom, I checked whatever right I might have to judge another man. I have to come in here and say, oh, you know, these things are wrong, and they are wrong. God says they're wrong, whatever that might be. But I cannot be your judge, jury, and executioner. Because you see, there but by the grace of God go I. It's so often that judging other people carries with it an air of self-righteousness. Oh, I would never do such a thing. I would never do that. Oh, yes, you would. You'd do that, and you'd do it a thousand times. You'd do things that are a thousand times worse than that. You'd bust hell wide open were it not for God's grace. That's the fact. Who knows where you would be today? And therefore, you can't look at the drunk in the alley, in the gutter, the prostitute on the street, the attic in the crack house. And you can't say, oh, I would never do such a thing. My friend, you'd do that and worse if God turned you over to your own sinful desires. There but I, there go I, but for the grace of God. Do you see that, to say the least, somehow disqualifies me? Men may well go to hell, you understand, but it's not my job to consign them there. My job may be to warn them and to warn men of the prospect of an eternity in hell to some extent requires discrimination and a judgment. I mean, how could I warn men that I don't think are going to hell? I mean, on the basis of God's Word, I have to say this is the way it looks to me. This is what the judgment is. This is what your prospects are. But my job's not to consign them to hell and it's not to make life on earth hell on earth till they get there. I am to walk in the steps of the Master. I do find one man who had the right to judge when he came, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone had the right to judge, he did. And constantly he refuses to do so. He said, even as the Son of Man came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Do you see the sense of that? He could have come. He could have come to condemn. He could have come to judge, but he didn't come. On that basis, he came to save, to rescue. And when John and James get all upset because of that Samaritan village that wouldn't allow them to spend the night in their inside their city limits, he says, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? And our Lord says, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. My friend, are you walking in the steps of the Master? Surely he will one day come in judgment. 
And knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But my friend, we ought to be on a rescue mission at the moment. This is a mercy mission that we've been called unto. And it also means, clearly, that we must fight the tendency to judge. Our proneness to judge. In Luke 12, there was a man came to Jesus and he says, uh, Master, it says, uh, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. You understand what that means? They had a little family feud going on, a little squabble. These two brothers fighting over the inheritance from their parents. Lord, make, make my brother, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And you know what Jesus replied? He says, man, who made me a judge over you and your brother? Now, that's interesting that he said that. But basically, he's saying, I didn't come to thrust myself into those kinds of squabbles and to settle those kinds of disagreements. That's not my mission. There are some, we would say, who go around looking for squabbles to get right in the middle of and to render their infallible opinions on what people ought to do and you ought to be doing this and they ought to be doing that. And what Jesus is saying there, I didn't come to do that. Who made me a judge? Sometimes I won't ask that question as a pastor. People coming to me and I want to just say, Oh Lord, who made me a judge? I don't know the answer. I don't know what to say. Oh my, fight that proneness to judge and to condemn. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul there, of course, in the middle of proving that all men are under sin, all men guilty, points out that all of us make moral judgments. Not soon, not long after we learn to talk, we learn to talk in this kind of language. You shouldn't. You ought not. Right? Very quickly, we learn to tell other people what they should or should not be doing. Now, what Paul uses in pointing that out in the first verses of Romans 2, he's showing that you and I have a moral makeup. We have a sense of right and wrong. What's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's not. The very fact that we would utter the words, you ought not, shows us to be moral beings. But he also shows us that we can't even keep our own standard. The standard that we try to impose on others, we don't keep it ourselves. We've fallen short of what we declare to be right and wrong, let alone what God declares to be right and wrong. Never think you're going to escape your own standard of judgment. That's what our Lord is pressing upon us. How much, how big is the pot, the measure with which you measure up judgment to pour out on others? Jesus says exactly that size of pot God will use in metering out your judgment. The way you dish it out is the way that you will receive it. That's a promise. And then fourthly, it also means that we do form condemning verdicts. Only as a last resort. It's not to ignore the evidence nor to stick our heads in the sand as if, you know, facts aren't facts. But it does mean that until we are faced with the indisputable evidence of someone's character, that we're going to do our best to believe the best about them, not the worst. Jesus, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about people having an evil eye. Remember that? If your eye be evil, then your whole body is full of darkness. 
Remember when we were kids, you used to get those little pieces of cellophane? You know, I'm thinking about a big old red piece of cellophane, hold it up over your eyes. I mean, you know, on the farm, we didn't have a lot to keep us occupied. So you get a piece of cellophane, you did a lot with it, you know. And you put that piece of cellophane over your eyes, and everything you looked at becomes red, because you're looking through red cellophane. Well, that's sort of what Jesus is describing there, the man whose eye is evil. He has an evil eye, and all he sees in everybody else is evil. He's got an evil detector. And everything he looks at, everything he sees people do, everybody's got an ulterior motive. Everybody, oh, they may be doing this, but really what they're thinking is this. They're really thinking that at heart. What Christ is describing here is that, oh, we should not be prone to judge people harshly until we are left no other alternative. Part of loving people, as Paul describes love in that wonderful charity love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is that we give people the benefit of the doubt. That when I see you do something, when I hear you say something, I immediately don't immediately go into that area that I can't see, that only God can see your heart and assume that you've said this or you've done this because of this reason or that reason. God only knows that. I cannot judge your motives. I cannot judge what's going on in your mind and in your heart. And until I can, my duty is to give you the benefit of the doubt. You may do something that I could take one way or another. I can laugh it off as if it was just you saying this or you meaning this as a dig to me. You're you're out to get me. And the way I take it tells more about me than you. What kind of a heart I have. E.W. Johnson, I don't know if they do this anymore, but E.W. is talking about when he was a young man, went to get a job at a bank. And they did a little personality test, handed out this little sheet, and and one of the questions he remembered, he says, uh, do you believe people are basically honest or dishonest? And he said, you know, you got to be careful how you answer those questions. He said, you know, theologically, we would say, well, men are all sinners and so forth, but he says, you got to be careful because he says, a thief thinks everybody else is a thief. So the man who puts down a little questionnaire, well, I think everybody's dishonest, is revealing more about his own heart than he is about human nature. My friend, it is our duty to always strive to see the good in people. Oh, there's plenty of evil there. My point is, do we have that evil eye that always sees evil, always sees the worst rather than the best? Love, according to Paul, thinks no evil. We are, to put it in a word, to be clear-eyed. That's what follows. He talks about taking specks and beams out of each other's eyes. Oftentimes, these words, this little parable that follows, is misread, misinterpreted to mean that we ought not ever to correct anybody else's behavior. That's not what it's saying. That we should never go messing around in somebody else's eye. That's not what it's saying. Notice, in fact, the whole point of the parable in verse 5 is so that you see clearly, so that you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. You understand that? 
It's not that we're never to go messing around with somebody else or messing around with their eye. It's that we see clearly first in order to remove the speck that is in their eye. Clearly, we can't correct the behavior of others if we don't see our own faults, if we don't see clearly ourselves. And so it implies that before we are in a position to help others see clearly, we first have to get our own house in order. Oftentimes in Scripture you'll see that as the order. I think of Paul's words to the elders of Ephesus that had come down to Miletus to meet him on his way back to Jerusalem. And he says in Acts 28.20, Take heed to yourselves and to the church over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Now he's preaching to a bunch of preachers. And he says, I want you not just to take heed to the church, take care of God's church, but take heed to yourself and then to the church. Here the preachers are on the receiving end of the preaching. Get your own house in order before you seek to manage the flock of God and the affairs of God's people. Take heed first to yourself. In Galatians 6, where we find the duty of brothers to help those brothers that they see overtaken in a fault. Ye that are spiritual, seek to restore him, considering first yourself, lest you fall into condemnation. Make sure your own heart is right before you go messing around in the hearts of others. And then notice this verse 6, very strange verse. Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine. We're going to talk about hogs and dogs. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, first of all, I hope that you are astute enough to know that he's not talking about the animals, dogs and hogs. He's using the animals, dogs and hogs, to refer to people. What kind of people? People that are unclean. People that are outside the camp. You know, we in America, I was asking Samuel if in, in Mexico do people have dogs in their house. And he thought about it a little while and he says, I can't remember a single person that has a dog in their house. You know, we Americans, we're so crazy about things. Crazy about dogs for one thing. We let them in, we treat them like family. In the Bible... Dogs are never referred to in a favorable light. Dogs were the scavengers of the city. Dogs will eat anything. And that's what he points out to here. They're not discriminating. You throw that which is holy to the dogs. They have no discernment between what is holy and what's not. And the hog, of course, one of the unclean animals, the swine. Throwing your pearl to a swine would be indicative of putting your precious things out in the view, in the eye of an animal who has absolutely no ability to discern between a pearl and a rock. He sees the pearl, but he's not able to distinguish or to evaluate it properly. And so by hogs and dogs, Jesus here is referring to those that are Outside, go, go to the book of Revelation just a moment. Revelation 22, and as many dogs as I have had in my life. I am delighted to find a verse like this. Revelation 22. 
verse 14. This is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Here's a symbolic depiction of heaven, if you will. Revelation 22:14. Blessed are they that wash the robes, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without, outside, are dogs. I am so glad to hear that the dogs are going to be outside in the kingdom of heaven. For without are dogs. But notice, this is not talking about the four-legged mangy kind and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. Do you understand that by dogs he means those that are unclean, vile, separated from the kingdom of heaven? Those that are outside the kingdom. And so he says, give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine. What in the world does that mean? At the least, it means that we do not hold our holy things up to the ridicule of this world. There is a point, folks, when we are presenting Christ to lost men. That we must draw the line and say, there, that's it. That's enough. I can give you numerous places in the scripture where people did exactly that. The Apostle Paul in Antioch of Pisidia proclaimed the gospel there in the synagogue for several Sabbath days. And finally the day came, the whole city came to hear them. And the Jews were filled with envy and they began to blaspheme the things that Paul was saying. And Paul basically said, okay, that's it, boys. As long as you would hear... As long as you were open, we will present our holy things to you. But you start blaspheming and the Gentiles and they will hear it. You say, oh, but he's judging those four folks. No, he's not. You've judged yourselves. We didn't judge you unworthy of eternal life. You did. So at the very least, it means that we do not hold up our holy things to the ridicule and the blasphemy of this world. And neither does it mean that we give holy things to the dogs. We do not give the benefits and the blessings, the spiritual blessings of life in Christ, forgiveness of sin, the assurance of salvation. My friend, we're not trying to pass those off on dogs and hogs. You understand what I'm saying? There's a discernment necessary as to who is in the kingdom and who is not. To those in the kingdom, and I, I would just have you notice back here where we were talking about pulling stuff out of each other's eyes, it's brothers' eyes that we're pulling things out of. Your brother has this speck in his eye. But here we're talking about dogs and hogs. Yes, I have a duty to my Christian brother that I don't have to a man in the world. There's a sense in which there is things I would give to you folks that I wouldn't give to others. Blessing, assurances, promises, because they don't belong to others. Oh, that they did. Not that my heart rejoices in that, but I must make that discrimination between who is inside the city of God and who is without. Well, we come then to the end. It's strange that we have this asking, seeking, knocking, 
before we finally get to the greatest duty of all towards our fellow man in verse 12, that what all, whatever we would, that men would do to us, even so do to them. That is what we call, after all, the golden rule. Jesus said, this is the law and the prophets. This is your duty. You who uh, get your computer software these days, you get this great big thick book at your manual. Who wants to read that? So they give you this little pocket guide, you know, this little condensed thing, a little card you can keep there handy and refer to the important stuff on that card. They can go and read the manual if you want to. Who wants to read the manual? Just give me that little card and let me look at it and refer to it. Jesus, in essence, by giving you what we call the golden rule, gives you the pocket manual. Here's a handy, dandy, concise little guide. You want to know at any point in time what your duty is to your fellow man. Whether you're sitting here in church, whether you're driving on the interstate going home, whether at work tomorrow in the office or at school or wherever you are, if you want to know what is your duty to man, you say, well, man, man, it's this whole big, big, big book. Well, let me give you the handy-dandy pocket guide, the condensed version. Whatever you would that men would do to you, that's your duty to do to them. Now, that's simple. I doubt there is anyone here who can understand any of my words this morning at all that can't understand that rule. It's about as simple as it gets. And it is inherently easy and reasonable. It's an accurate guide. But, oh, my friend, to the wise man, nothing cuts us to the quick quite so much as the consideration that it is my duty to do to others as I would have them to do to me. If that's what the law demands, if that's the righteousness of the law, and it is, my, am I in trouble. Oh, how far short of this I fall. Well, there are some rather shallow thinkers, I think, who think perhaps they've done this. I remember the rich young ruler came running to Jesus, said, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the law, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the rich young ruler replied, all these things have I done from my youth up. Oh. And Jesus says, well, you know, if you love your neighbor just as much as you love you, this shouldn't be hard. Go take what you've got and give it to your neighbor. I mean, you know, you say you love your neighbor just as much as you love you. Well, this is an easy commandment to keep. And the man went away very sorrowful and perhaps for the first time in his life realized he didn't even come close to loving his neighbor as he loved himself. Mm. To do to others what I would have them do to me. That's the law. That's my duty, man towards man, under the law. And oh my, how far I have shrunk, how far I have missed it. To love your neighbor as you love yourself, another way of saying it. Jesus one time was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. A scribe asked him that question, a thinking man. And he immediately knew to ask the question, and who is my neighbor? 
I mean, maybe I can water this thing down. Maybe if it's just my family or my own immediate neighborhood or, or at least my own countryman, maybe I can narrow that scope of that commandment down. And Jesus proceeds to explain who is my neighbor by telling the parable we know is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It means anyone that we see in need, in trouble. That's my duty. That's what it is to love my neighbor as myself. You want to know why the asking, seeking, knocking is mentioned? Because any reasonable person is going to realize, I need grace. I need help. This is not me. This is not what I am by nature. This is not what I am by birth. By birth, I came into this world seeking and grabbing. You know, they put me in the playpen with another baby. Next thing I know, I'm taking his rattle away. Because I want it. I came into this world seeking my own things, wanting my appetites met. Didn't care what happened to anybody else. That's the way I am by nature and by birth. And this, this is foreign. Foreign to me, foreign to natural man. I need help, I need grace, I need someone to give me this stuff. To obey these commandments. To treat others as as God would have me treat them. I can't do this on my own. And so I ask, I ask, and in the asking I acknowledge I don't have it. And I acknowledge God does. And I seek. A little more intensive than just asking, isn't it? I seek. Because I must have it. This isn't optional. I don't see an asterisk here. Do you? You know, like an asterisk outside Roger Maris's name in the you know, this is optional. For you spiritual marines out there that would really like to serve Christ, you can do this, but everybody else, you know, you can let this slide. Do you see an asterisk? I've got to have it. And then the knocking. I'm desperate. I'm desperate. And I knock, and I knock, and I knock because there's only one hope for me, and that's that God would give me grace. God, make me what I'm not. Jesus told a parable about a guy. Had some friends come in the middle of the night. Visitors show up unexpected. Didn't have anything to feed them. Had nothing in the house. So he goes next door over to his neighbor's house. About midnight. And he starts banging on his neighbor's door. Get up! I need something to feed my friends. My friends have come and I don't have anything to feed them. I need to borrow some bread from you to set before my friends. And, and here this guy hollers back from inside the house. I don't know about you, I'd just feel about this tall if I went over to Tim's house at midnight banging on the door. And I hear him from inside saying, but I'm in bed. All the kids are in bed. We're asleep. Go away. Leave us alone. But the man kept on knocking. And the scripture says, because of his importunity, importunity, it's a strange old King James word that we don't use anymore. It essentially means his shamelessness. Because of his shamelessness, he just wouldn't be shamed away. Oh, what a, it'd make me feel that tall for them to have to come to your house in the middle of the night and get you out of bed. And it's my fault. It's my guess. I don't have anything. I mean, it's not your problem. Make me feel about that too, but keep on and keep on and keep on. My friend, this is our problem. 
This way I ought to live, and I can't live this way. It's my problem. And yet I know somebody that's got what I need. And Jesus is encouraging us to go bang on His door. And bang on His door. And bang on His door. Till He gives us what we want. How bad do you want Him? How bad do you want to be like Jesus? Because you see what's being described here is just the way Jesus was. There's just one person I know of that came into this world and lived this way. There's just one person I know of that did unto others as he would have them do unto him. Just one person I know of who loved his neighbor as he loved himself. Just one person that I know of that acts like that good Samaritan. Isn't it interesting? That's what they called him. They said at one time, are, are we not right that you're a Samaritan? You got a demon? You know the story. Here's this guy that was in Jerusalem, decided to go down to Jericho, fell among those robbers and thieves, stripped him of his raiment, beat him up, left him in the ditch half dead. My friend, that's me. That's me. That's what sin did to me. I'm half dead. Alive physically, but dead is a doornail towards the things of God. And my friend, a priest, came down the road and he took a look at me and he turned up his nose and he just went right on. And I'm glad he did because there ain't one thing religion can do for dead sinners. And there's a religious man, this righteous man, this Levite came along and looked at one look at me and turned up his nose and went on down the road. I'm glad he did because there's nothing morality can do to a man lying in the ditch half dead. And then that Samaritan, against anyone's expectations, had pity, had mercy. No one expected him. No one would have thought a thing if he'd have just gone by. But he saw me. And he stopped. And he bound up my wounds. He poured oil in them. He put me on his donkey. He brought me to the innkeeper and says, whatever it costs, I'll pay it. That's why I'm a Christian. And that's why I want to follow in the steps of Christ, my Master and my Lord. Are you outside the kingdom today? Folks, it's going to take grace for you to get in. This world's got you. The love of it, the lust of it, the desire for it, it's got you. Your own desires, your own appetites. You want to feed your belly just like that hog rooting around in the dirt for stuff to eat, fill your belly, and never seeing, oblivious to what real riches and real preciousness is all about. And there you are and there you'll be unless somebody has mercy on you, unless except somebody Open your eyes and you start asking and you start seeking and you start knocking and you don't quit till God does something in your heart. There's a bunch of folks here. I know it because I know you well enough to know your heart, know your background and to know that once you were a hog rooting in the walla, 
once a dog with no discernment between clean and unclean. But a miracle has taken place. God did something in you and has brought you to His Son. My friend, may we never get over the miracle of sovereign grace. Oh, what a wonder it is that dogs and hogs like you and me could be transformed into lambs who follow the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, magnify Your grace in our sight today. Overwhelm us again with a fresh vision of Your mercy and grace to sinners, undeserving sinners of life and blessing, deserving only of hell and condemnation. And not because of us, but in spite of us. You pitied our souls, and You came, and You sought us, and You bought us, and You brought us back to Your side. Lord, do this work over and over around us. May we be the instruments of mercy, your mercy in the lives of others. For, Father, our hearts go out. Father, it is not our, our job to stand in condemnation of a world that's perishing because, Father, once there was a time when we were perishing alongside them. Father, if we know anything of Christ, anything of the gospel, that our hearts yearn to see others rescued, brought to Christ, that they might know and find what we know and have found, the wonder of life in Him, the prospect of eternity with Thee. Lord, how we need to know it, how we need to see it. How, how unbecoming. We who ourselves, who are such debtors to mercy and grace, to go around condemning and judging others. How unbecoming the gospel that has saved our soul. How unbecoming the ministry of our Lord. Lord, give us a heart of love and compassion. And though, Father, we must recognize they that are lost and they that are saved, and that by their fruits we shall surely know them, Yet, Father, our heart's desire is that the loss not be damned, but be saved. Use us in that great work of gathering your people into your kingdom. Give us a heart for the work. May it be our joy to point others to he who rescued us, that they might come to know him as well. Father, we who are brothers and sisters in Christ, may we ever, may we ever avoid this horrible thing of being censorious towards each other. Harsh, hard. May we remember that the measure with which we meet it out will be that measure by which we receive. So, Father, may we be gracious and kind, understanding. May we give each other the benefit of the doubt as Christians should. May we live, Father, as Christians and brothers and sisters ought to live in this kingdom. Now deal with our hearts, we pray, as we conclude our service. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.